0: Hi guys it's adam from samson's hair care here i wanted to let you know that when you use the code bluegrass on our website Sampson'sHaircare.com, bluegrass will save you 10 percent and go to support this wonderful podcast the walls of time sharing the history and stories of bluegrass
1: welcome to walls of time field interviews with the best in bluegrass A member of the Grand Ole Opry and the Bluegrass Hall of Fame, Del McCurry has one of the most distinctive voices in all of Root's music. With the Del McCurry Band, he has led one of the most successful bluegrass bands of all time, bringing the high lonesome sound to new places and new heights. Del sits down with Daniel Mullins at the Dayton Art Institute to talk about his legendary career. From his humble beginnings growing up on a farm to his many years working in the timber business, Del's story is one of unexpected twists and turns, both personally and professionally professionally. He talks with Daniel about making music with some of the genre's founders like Bill Monroe and Don Reno and how the Del McCurry band's ability to embrace variety has helped in creating a diverse fan base and has also led to some unique collaborations like with the Preservation Hall jazz band. Let's say Del yeah as we head to Dayton, Ohio to visit backstage with the Grammy award-winning Del McCurry for the season two finale of the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast.
0: Mr. McCurry, uh, we were talking the other day about your childhood, what was growing up like for you?
2: Well, you know, I grew up on a farm. My dad, he worked in a defense plant during the war. Uh, But then after the war was over, uh, he told my mother, he said, you know what, we've got to buy us a little bit of land or we're liable to starve to death when this war's over. Because they figured times would get hard, you know? Well. So he bought a, uh, uh, there was a farm advertised on a sheriff's sale. It was 90 acres. And he thought, well, I'll go bid on it. And he bid on it and got that farm for (laughs) $1,700. We owe how prices have changed since then. (laughs) He did. And he started, he he started back farming. He had farmed before that. But uh, when the war come along, he, he had sold his other farm and went to work in a defense plant. He's too old for the war, but they would train you, you know, and they trained him as a, uh, as a, uh, uh, well, what do you call it? People that works with tools in a, like a mechanic. Yeah. Machinist. Machinist. Yeah. yeah. He went to machinist school and learned all that, you know, and then of course, when the war was over, he went back to farming. And that's when I would have been about, oh, let's see. I'd have been about seven then, you know, and, uh, yeah, just i hadn't started school too much before that and so i grew up on that farm and he got cows and, and finally got a dairy in that barn he had to fix it to put a dairy in it and, and he eventually got milkers now that's why my hands are so big i had to milk cows before he got them milk uh electric milkers you know and of course we raised corn and wheat and how, rye and oats. how many and, cows do you have well there, it started with nine he put he 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 put a dairy in there and fixed for nine stanchions you know to hold them in yeah and then by the time we he we were done he had 18 milking cows he wow. run them nine out and put nine more in you know and uh, he did that till about 1953 and then he 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 got out of the milking business you know and, but he still farmed after that and uh, of course I farmed until uh, it wasn't too long before I went to work for Bill Monroe, you know. I drove a truck before that and I, I didn't work in the woods before that, but I worked all on the farm. Drove everything, had wheels or tracks or whatever. <laughs> I, I could drive anything, you know. <laughs> I got my license when I was 15, lied my age. <laughs> when my dad was gonna go somewhere, I'd run out there and get under the, under the steering wheel. Now he'd say, "Boy, you can't drive. You ain't got a license." <laughs> I could drive everything else, you yeah. know. <laughs> so finally he said, "Look, you're gonna be driving that car. We better go get you some driver's license." Well, back then, you know, they didn't ask for your birth certificate, nothing. You know, they just asked you how old you was, and I told him I 16. You know. <laughs> and the other thing he asked me this guy, he said, "All right, what color eyes you got?" And and, and of course I had problem squinting my eyes back in those days. He said, "Open them up so I can see him." <laughs> he hollered at me. Oh, <laughs> uh, but I got my license then, you know, and, and uh, but that's that's what I did all growing up. And of course, then my brother, while we were there on that farm, my brother he had gotten married. He he was nine years older than me, but he taught me to play the guitar. He wanted somebody to play with him. Now he was playing on the radio then, but he was playing with a band, you know, and and, and he had time at home to play music. So he wanted me to learn to play chords, and I did. I, he taught me to play chords, and and then, uh, of course, he bought a, a he got a job off the farm, and he was making good money for a single guy, you know, and and he he would buy records every weekend. He'd go and buy records because he liked. He liked them all. He liked Flatt and & Scruggs, and they hadn't been in business long. Yeah. Uh, he liked them. He liked Bill Monroe. He liked Ernest Tubb and Roy Acuff, you name it, you know, all those old guys. And uh, so, so he bought this record, Flatt and & Scruggs, and I didn't know what year it came out, but Eddie Stubbs told me, he said it came out in 1950. He told me what minute, <laughs> what month, what day <laughs> it was released, you know. Yeah. And and on the other side was I'll Just Pretend. It was uh, roll in my sweet baby's arms and I'll just pretend on the other side. And, and of course, I wore that record out and I told Brother GC, you know, I said, you know, I want to learn to play the banjo. I want to do like that doing <laughs> A lot of us didn't want to do what that guy was doing. <laughs> and uh, so my my dad, uh, then he, in the wintertime, when he wasn't as busy on the farm, he, he was driving dump truck for a fella that we knew and uh, this guy had an old vega banjo. it was it was a cheap one you know it had a screw in the back there to hold the back on you know and it was uh but i don't know what it sounded like i can't remember but i learned to play on that thing learned how to tune it and how to to roll but i got my roll wrong and I, I saw earl scruggs in 1955 And I got up close enough to him to see what he was doing with that right hand. And I said, I know what he's doing now. (laughs) I can see. (laughs) And I straightened my roll out. And and from that time on, you know, I did pretty well. You know, I did pretty good and got a job with Jack Cook, eventually playing. But I played with a band called Keith Daniels and the Blue Ridge Ramblers. And uh, he'd get a he could get work you know he's he was a manager and a he's booking agent and uh and a singer and you name it everything play everything and and he knew all those dc bands and he knew all, all the guys that played in dc before they even got in a band you know like john duffy he was in the restaurant business too and and he, uh, on the weekends, he said he, uh, like John Duffy and Charlie Waller and all those guys, Bill Emerson, they'd come over to his restaurant and they'd play in the room there, down underneath. And then if they eventually formed a band, you know, and he knew Buzz Busby real well. Oh, yeah. He knew Buzz. And uh, he also knew, knew Earl Taylor and the Stony Mountain Boys, all, all those guys. And, and I got acquainted with them through Keith because – I lived in York County and it bordered Baltimore County, Maryland, so uh we'd go down there and, and, and see Earl. He knew him, he knew Earl real well and, and uh Walt Hensley was playing then, you know, with, with Earl and and man, he, he was such a good player, you know, and and I went in there one time and and he, he wasn't playing his old Gibson, he was playing something else and I said, Uh, where's that old Gibson? He was playing. He said that's down at the pawn shop, you going to go buy that thing? And I said, Yeah. I'd bought I'd started making money myself, got a job, yeah. and I bought a brand new Gibson. And I thought, now this this looks a lot like what Earl plays yeah. <laughs> not knowing a thing about it, yeah. you know. <laughs> so <laughs> so he said, uh, you gonna trade your yours in? I said, Yeah. He said, How much money can you come up with? Walt did, I said, I come up maybe with a hundred dollars, you know. That might swing it. I never <laughs> forgot what he said. And we went, he said, now, you come over to the house, and, and we'll go down there, and you let me do the talking. I know, I know this guy that runs the pawn shop. <laughs> so he said, uh, so we made the deal. You know, he he, he did, He $100 got it. $100 got yeah. it. And he said, Walt whispered to me, and he said, now, look, uh, while I'm talking to him, you put your banjo, you put the one you bought now, in your case, because this one don't have a case with it. <laughs> and he said, he won't know the difference. <laughs> so, so I did. I put it in my, my case. I had a Gibson case, you know. And uh, so then I played that thing, and I played the first time I played with Bill Monroe, I played that. It was a 1934 40 hole arch tops, what it was. And it had a great sound. I'm telling you, it rung like a bell, you know. <laughs> and we were using calf skins then, yet, you know, back, back in those days. And, and it would hit, you could go up the neck of that thing and it just rang. And, you know, it just rang like a bell. <laughs> <laughs> you, you said you were working at that time. Is that when you would, uh, got involved in the timber business for the first time? Let me see now. My dad had a sawmill, and I—I I really didn't work timber that much. He just—he kind of—what happened? He bought a farm, and along with that farm was a sawmill on the farm. Okay. And, and a grist mill and a—a a, a feed mill, you know, where you could grind feed and all that stuff. And it was run by a water-fed race. It had a sixteen-foot, sixteen-foot water wheel in that. To run all that stuff, sawmill and everything. and uh, But he mainly, just, if he needed lumber, we'd go out and cut a tree and he'd saw it up on that mill, you know. <laughs> but then when I got married, I, my father in law, that's all he'd done was sawmill. He, he owned a, a fricked sawmill. All those sawmill guys don't know what a frick is, it's, it's a brand name. And he owned one of those, and, and he'd take that sawmill, he'd buy a bunch of timber. He'd take that sawmill and move it in on that, uh, on the land there where the where the timber was, and all you had to do is drag the, the logs into the to the sawmill and then put them on a the truck and haul them to, wherever they were going to, you know.
0: You said that your father-in-law
2: was in the timber business as well. How did yeah. how did you uh you meet your wife? Well, I'll tell you what that band that I was in, Keith Daniels and the Blue Ridge Ramblers. Uh, my wife's uncle played in that band. Oh, really? I didn't know her. Uh, but, it, all the people that we knew back there in York County were, like, I mean, the majority of them, it seemed like were from Western North Carolina. They'd vib- migrated yeah. up there, you know. A lot of folks, uh, in that time, you know, moved up to places like... DC
0: and Baltimore and Dayton Ohio and Detroit finding work after the war right that's
2: what happened and during the war yeah you know because they were they were making a lot of wartime stuff you know that uh Glenn L Martin was in Baltimore and he built airplanes uh and for the war and then there was the shipbuilding, you know there and also the steel mill and and a lot of people moved from western carolina and east tennessee you know up there and that's that's where all of my people and my wife's people that say from the same uh they grew up all in uh within about five miles of each other down in the mountains you know yeah. and and of course frank Campbell, his name was her uncle and uh, he he was a guitar player singer he's good too and so he he moved up there i mean his dad moved up there Two to do the same thing you know they was working in defense plant, so uh she came with him to a park where we played one time. she was only see, I would have been about twenty, I guess, and she was she' maybe only sixteen or something like that, and i couldn't believe um my eyes, you know I thought boy, that's a pretty girl <laughs> 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 and so but her mom her mom you wouldn't let her go out all the time. She was with her uncle and he's he's watching out for her, you know. <laughs> but I finally uh somehow her mother let me start coming dating her, you know. <laughs> at first we didn't go nowhere, just just stay there at the house, you know. Yes. But they were Campbell's and they were from uh they were from Mitchell County, North Carolina too, you know. Uh but but uh, we weren't a kin or nothing like that, but I uh, and the, the way it was, once we got to PA, a lot of them separated, you know. And I, I never did meet her until then. I never yeah. met her th- until that time. But my dad and her grandpa worked in the woods together in North Carolina, really driving teams pulling logs out. Yeah. you know. Yeah, he he said my dad said, oh yeah, Jimmy Campbell, he was a he was a swamper. Now I said I said to my dad, what's a swamper? He said that's the guy that goes and looks at a road through them woods where you can drag them logs out. And he has a, a crew under him, and they had axes and, and uh, cross-cut saws, and they'd saw all of the little timber, the big timber, whatever it was, to to make a road to drag them the timber out, you know. And and he, he drove, and he also fired a boiler on a sawmill. That's back when they was run by steam, you yeah, know. yeah. Wow! (laughs) (laughs) some guy came up to him they 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 hired a guy to fire the boiler at this big sawmill down there my dad told me the story and he said well after a while he'd run out of steam the sawmill'd have shut down and they want to keep them things running i mean just hot and heavy all day long you know well they hired jimmy camel and uh and my dad said he'd get that thing good and hot and when he did, he'd just throw one slab in so he'd take the slabs off the milk and just throw big long slabs in there. He'd throw one in there. And then he'd sit down. And he wasn't working hard. And then in a few minutes, when that when it, it he'd throw another in there. He knew how to fire something to keep the heat up. Yeah, yeah. And the other guy would smother it down to where there wouldn't be no heat, you know, yeah. It'd take it an hour to get hot again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so somebody asked him and said, Jimmy how comes you can keep that thing hot and keep the steam up where that other fella he, he was working himself to death and we never could keep going and Jimmy said, I just turned a little screw. <laughs> 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 I used to like to hear him tell him tales about years ago, you know. <laughs>
3: Women love men who care about their hair, and nothing makes a man's hair look better than Samson's hair care. Hi, I'm Santana Bell, and let me tell you, Daniel Mullins' hair was a mess before he started using Samson's. Trust me, I'm his girlfriend, but Samson's has made a world of difference. It holds all day. Even after a day of riding roller coasters, his hair still looked great. I couldn't believe it. But even with the all-day hold, I could still easily run my fingers through his hair without it feeling stiff or greasy. But the best part is the smell. It's not overpowered but it gives off a distinctive, pleasant aroma that lasts all day. Honestly, a man could stop wearing cologne as long as he wore Samson's. It smells that good. Head to samsonshaircare.com to get some hair pomade for the man in your life. Neither of you will be disappointed. Use code bluegrass at checkout to save 10%. That's samsonshaircare.com. Code bluegrass to receive 10% off. samsonshaircare.com. Code bluegrass
2: but now it's going to say now time i got into it big you know my i worked for my my uh father-in-law but then i my wife's uncle he he started up and and he got into it really big and we were just cutting veneer That's all like white oak and walnut and ash that's about it we uh, just buy that out of out of patch of woods you know and and then eventually got a a guy that would cruise the timber and buy timber for us. That way, we didn't have to stop. When we cut all this out, we can move right over to the next bunch, you know. And and anyway, he approached me one day. and He said, "I need a skidder driver." And I said, "Well, I ain't never drove one of them things." And uh, but I said, "I bet I can." <laughs> You've been driving <laughs> since you were fifteen. <laughs> yeah, <right? laughs> I drove everything else, yeah. you know. Yeah. I drove. I tell you what, I got a. I was working for another logger before that and he was logging with a a caterpillar you know his own tracks yeah. uh and and th- these uh locks these rubber tartar skitters what he had and it had a winch on it with a five eighths inch cable you know and uh i got the hang of that pretty quick and i run that thing for 11 years while wow. while the boys were growing up you know and i had well we had a daughter too and while they were all growing up and i did that until they all got through high school you know and we got independent but i was playing music too all that time and losing sleep a lot of times you know but but when you're young you can do that yeah (laughs) (laughs) i can't do it now (laughs) Uh,
0: you you were saying the other day that you were always kind of on edge when you're doing the logging work because of
2: you know, fingers or limbs or oh, yeah. stuff falling down? I'm telling you, it is a dangerous business. It's uh, um, it's a business that is hard to get insured. Because <laughs> 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 so many guys got hurt bad and killed, you know. The, like limbs coming out when, when you cut a tree and it's in the woods, you know. Uh, a lot of times it, the limbs out of the tree you're cutting – are hanging into other yeah. limbs like intertwined other, with other, that's yeah. right yeah well what'll happen you gotta when you see it falling. when you see it's falling you gotta run backwards <laughs> because if you don't i mean a lot of limbs will fly back and land right on that stump where you were cutting you know and they could be limbs as big as your leg and, and they're killers you know and and so it, it was a job where you had uh you had to be on you had to be on it all the time, you know, and watching everything, you know. I, that was a. I think that was the most dangerous part of it. All was cutting timber, you know. Uh, my brother, my the guy I worked for, he'd got he he'd fell out of trees and he'd, he broke ribs and I don't know what all, you know.
0: <laughs> What's the scariest thing you ever saw while working on the job site?
2: Well, what could I say now? That was probably it. There was one, uh, there was a guy, I was running the skitter, and uh, this guy that that was working with us, he had, uh, he, he was cutting a big tree like I was just talking about there, and he didn't see this big limb coming at him, and it hit him right here on the shoulder, and I thought, uh-oh. I mean, it just knocked him like that, you know. Yeah. If it had hit him on the head, it, he wouldn't be here today, I know, but it hit him on the shoulder. And knocked him down that way and i saw it happen and i thought Oh, he might be dead you know yeah. that was the worst thing i ever saw wow but he wasn't he was okay he broke it broke his shoulder his, uh, collarbone collarbone yeah. yeah when it did that it just brushed there and, and it was so heavy a big old heavy limb you know that broke out and come come from way high right down there and he I don't know how he didn't see it, but he did Yeah, and six or eight inches more one way would have hit him right on the head. Yeah. Yes, it would have wow. stove his head right up in in his body, probably. You know? Wow. But it, it happened. I, I knew of a lot of guys that that got hurt, but but I never saw one get killed. Yeah. Now I know, I know where where we where we'd take logs to, and and uh, they they tell about somebody that did get killed. I've heard of guys wow. getting killed, you know, doing that but uh that was probably the worst thing i saw i know i c- i come close but i never would tell nobody yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you had to, sometimes if you cut a tree you notch it on one side then yes. you go on the back side you know And if you think it's going to go with the notch which i was pretty sure it would but the thing about it was behind the tree was nothing but bras big high bars you know high as my head and I should have cut me a way out to run that way back, yeah. and I didn't. And uh, that when that tree started falling, it, it scooted back off the stump towards me. Oh yeah. Caught me right here and pushed me right back, in them bars. Oh. But it didn't lay on me. It laid on the, on the old stump. Oh, on the stump. The stump saved you then. Yeah. It could it have got a leg or
0: not or it, something. Anything. Yeah, yeah. If, if uh, yeah. Wow. But it
2: pushed me right back in them bars and. Uh,
0: I had to fight my way back out of them bars. <laughs> you hadn't cut your way out, so now you had to fight your way out, right? I did,
2: yeah. <laughs> wow. But that's probably the closest I came. I had—I uh, was pretty careful, actually. I really was. Some guys are pretty, uh, you know, pretty ramroddy, and they, they don't think. They just go in there like a, a bull in a china closet, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't think about the danger, but... Uh, it, it'll get you when you're not when you're not looking though it'll get you eventually you know i'm glad i'm not doing it now because
0: <laughs> yeah that had to make uh when when you got to where you were uh doing that during the during the week and then get to go play yeah. music on the weekends probably made it that much more enjoyable to be on stage playing music right
2: it really did yeah oh i'll tell you one accident i had i had to go to europe mm-hmm. i had a 30-day uh tour in europe and and I, I was working in the woods, and I told my boss, you know, I said, now I'm, i got to take a whole month off, you know, and he would let me do that. When I wrote that song about the logging man, about, yeah. this was about him. Really? I, I did, I wrote it about him. And he's tougher than a pine knot, you know. He was. <laughs> Big old long lanky thing, you know. <laughs> and anyway, so, so the last day that I worked in the woods, I was going to, get a flight over to Europe. The next day, uh, I was walking around the skidder. It's got a big high tires, but head high, you know? And I, it looked kind of swampy there. And I walked around the tire and laid my hand up on that tire like that. And a big dead limb come out and hit me on the elbow right there. Oh, man. And I couldn't, my, I was locked in on account of my hand laying on the tire. Yeah, yeah. And my, my, nothing would move. It, it hit me right on there, and oh, I thought I'm done for. I can't go to Europe and play a big guitar. Yeah. it's my right hand, you know. Oh, man. And you know what, though? It was so sore. I couldn't even uh, change gears going home that night. Oh, man. I was in a pickup truck, I think. And, and I did change gears, but it was hard. But anyway, and it was sore the next day when I left. But, you know, when you're young, you heal pretty quick. It didn't break nothing. It just, uh, uh, just hit that muscle right there. Just bruised right up. it up real bad. It yeah. did, yeah, yeah, oh, man, it really I, I did. And, and you know, I didn't even try to play the guitar till I got over there. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I could play. It yeah. didn't. It didn't bother me. But you use your wrists mostly. Yeah. You know, I could lay my arm down like that and play, and and, and it didn't bother my wrist. So I was lucky. Man. I couldn't have play. Yeah, it could have easily broke broke your yeah, arm or it, elbow or whatever just sure could have because it bent it, it right up it there. would not move you know and that big limb that big limb was probably big as my leg and it was it was an old dead limb and it was just a short stick about that long and and she hit there oh i saw stars oh man <laughs> but man. but i i got to do it i guess the lord was with me on yeah, a couple times so. you know <laughs> so uh
0: how did you get the job working with bill monroe
2: well i'll tell you the way i got the job working with bill monroe uh eventually uh i wasn't working for keith daniels anymore and i got a a job playing banjo with jack cook yeah he was a, a bass player with the stanley brothers and that's how he met bill monroe was through uh working for the stanley brothers and and he had already but he already knew how to play a guitar and uh so he got a job playing guitar with bill monroe and singing lead and he he was there for about three years i think oh wow in the middle to late 50s he was on uh stuff like uh, i'm trying to think of some of the songs he he's on record with him. oh he did a lot of those you know the, some of those instrumentals that Bill did in, in the 50s yeah yeah uh he was on quite a few of those and anyway he quit bill monroe and came to washington dc to play with the bluegrass champs um the uh, most people know him by the stoneman family you know they they had a tv show there and they offered him a job i guess and he thought "Well, i'll take that job so he moved to washington dc and then i think what happened they lost their tv show i played that tv show with keith the guy i was working for uh there's a guy named uh oh he was a he was a promoter Uh, i can't remember his name now he was the one that got the show for the bluegrass champs for those guys and he emceed it and all like that and of course we worked for we worked for him you know And, and uh so i i never did really ask jack anything about it but but when they lost their show he went to baltimore just 40 miles away you know and he got a job with uh, earl taylor yeah yeah uh, and i think jim mccall had been with he had been with earl already first it was uh sam hutchins he was playing with earl playing guitar and singing and then walt hensley come to town and sam said that earl taylor said hey Get that guy to play the banjo, and I'll play the guitar. Well, because he was good, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then, then, uh, and and I got to know them all. Then, you know, after that, and uh, Earl got this job playing at Carnegie Hall. you yeah. know. And he was the first bluegrass band to ever play at Carnegie Hall. Yeah. And so uh, I went down there to see him after. I knew they were back. You know, and they were going to come back and play the club they were in there. And uh, Sam Hutchins was sitting over at a table, and I went over and sat down with him. And Earl and the boys were up there, and Jim McCall was playing. Now, I knew Jim because me and Jim played for Keith yeah. years before that. Yeah. He, he'd play banjo or guitar, and I'd play both, either one. And so we, we, we'd we switch, and we played for Keith. And so Jim McCall was playing with Earl, and Sam was sitting there at that table. And I said, what happened, Sam? He said, well, he said, I went up there, <laughs> with Earl and he said we got a pair and he put his name on my song <laughs> Of course I guess Ben's the head of the band he could do that
0: yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> and
2: so I guess they had a fallen out and uh, then Jim you know he kept playing he kept playing with Earl and and for for,
0: uh, for any younger listeners that may not be as familiar with Earl Taylor and Jim McCall they were a big deal back then.
2: They were man, they were really good. You oh know. yeah, they were a good team. Yeah, they could they could sing and play, you know, <laughs> and uh, it was it was a better fit than than uh, Sam Hutchins and and Earl. I'm, I must say that. But Sam he could play anything. He could play the banjo, play guitar, and uh, you name it. <laughs> and, but Sam then he got his own band there in Baltimore. He he got. Max Blevins to play banjo, and he got uh Hoppy Ledford to play bass, and they had a threesome. They just played three, and they recorded some they recorded some E.P.s. Yeah. He he was a good songwriter. Sam was. They call him Porky there in town. <laughs> <laughs> he had kind of had big jaws, you yeah, know, and they call him jowls, Porky. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Porky, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway. Uh, i forgot what i was started to tell you then about you were talking
0: about uh working with jack cook and how jack kind of introduced you to bill didn't
2: he yes that's what happened then so so then jack he must have quit earl then and he just went right across the street and got a job at another place (laughs) and and he started a band he had a banjo player and a bass player and i went in there to see him one time and and he said, you got your banjo with you? And, and I said, yeah. And he said, let's play one. Well, I played one with him. And he said, uh, you want a job? <laughs> so <laughs> I did. I took a job with Jack. And uh, at the time, uh, Kimball Blair was playing fiddle with Jack. And that, his son is uh, Warren Blair. But Kimball was the fiddle player. And he he sang baritone. And we had a we had a trio, you know. And and the the bass player that he had i don't know what happened to him and and brother jerry was just a kid man he he shouldn't even been in there but he said uh, i said oh we didn't have a bass player i said "I'll, i'll bring jerry down here and so he he talked me and me and jerry talked to the owner the club owner and he let it he let jerry play and I know he only had to be about 14. Yeah, He's too young to be in there, you know. Yeah. But he's a good bass player, yeah. man. <laughs> <laughs> and we had a good band, you know. So yeah. so one night, we were, we were playing there. there's a place called a Chapel Cafe is what it was, right off Broadway in Baltimore there. And we was playing, and there was a side door about uh, – 10 foot from the stage is there's a door a front door and then there's a side door where the alley was and some guy opened that door and walked in sat down in a chair right beside the door and it was kind of dark in there and because the the lights were on stage and there wasn't none out there in the audience and and this guy had a big white hat on and i thought god that looks like bill monroe and i thought he wouldn't be in this place i know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> so when, the, when that set was over uh we went back to the uh where we where we tuned up back there in in a room back there and uh jack t- said uh, chief we all called him chief later on I found out that everybody called him chief then he said chief come on well bill got up and followed him back followed us back there, you know and was talking to jack and and, and through the conversation I could tell they were he stopped there to get Jack to go to New York City. He was playing; uh, it might have been New York, New York University. And uh, so, Jack said, uh, "Have you have you got a banjo player with you?" And he said, "No." It was just Bill Monroe, and Kenny Baker, and Bessie Bessie Lee playing the bass. And uh, he said, "Well, we'll take Jack with us." And uh, uh, so uh, Bill didn't say nothing and i just went with him it's the next day i think uh and and i went with him up there and i thought well you know we probably uh tune up and rehearse for a while before we go on (laughs) we (laughs) we tuned up all right but walked right out on stage (laughs) (laughs) and how old were you sink or swim man i think i was 23. oh wow 63 now wait a minute i was born 39 and this is 63 it'd have been 24 24 yeah. yeah 24 and jack wasn't much older than me he was a little older than me but but we went up there and 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 i surprised i i could do because jack and earl and all the guys i'd ever been with they did a lot of bill monroe songs you know and instrumentals and and you name it and so so i remember i remember i had to play rawhide and i knew how to play rawhide you know <laughs> and and uh, so i I got by pretty good that night. I <clears throat> sang baritone with 'em. If it needed, you know. So uh on the way back he had a fifty nine Oldsmobile, super eighty eight station wagons what we were travelling in. And that car had about two hundred and fifty thousand miles on it by the time we and this is sixty three. So if they bought it new, if they were really putting some miles on it, you know it. Anyway, it the engine or transmission had not been touched in that car, and there was a thing wrong with it, you know. But anyway, on the way back to Baltimore, uh, Jack drove, and uh, so he was sitting up, and Bessie Lee was sitting in the in the passenger side there, and she had her road atlas up on that big wide dash, you know. <laughs> she knows where she's going. Yeah, <laughs> she's give directions, you know. Yeah. So. Uh, Jack, he was driving, and I was sitting in back there in the middle between Kenny Baker and Bill Monroe. And and it's hard to ride there There's a hump where the drive shaft comes yeah. through there, you know. You had to cross your legs to be comfortable. And anyway, I was sitting there, and uh, Bill, uh, he he spoke over here on, on the side of me to Kenny. He said, Kenny, what do you think of this banjo picker? And Kenny said, I'll tell you, Chief, he's got a wicked right hand. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so that's all said <laughs> And so we got back to Baltimore and when we got out of the car I had my car parked there at the club and and on the way uh, when I got out he paid me then he paid me when I got out and he said uh, do you want a job he said he said I, I, I need a banjo player and, and I said well I don't I don't know what to tell you, you know. because <laughs> I like playing with Jack. Me and him was kind of the same age. He's good really a good guitar player and and the bands I'd been in before, you know, had been a lot of bad guitar players, you know, in my mind. But Jack could play a guitar. He really could. And so I really liked playing with him and singing with him and so I told him I said, Well, I'll tell you what, I'll talk it over with Jack. And uh and he said, "Well, look, now here's my phone number. He wrote it down for me. And he said uh, if you take a notion you want the job, you you come to Nashville and uh, you get your room at the Clarkston Hotel up there on 17th, I mean 7th Avenue. It's where the old Tennessee Building is, now, that big old tall building. It was it was right there beside the National Life and Accident Insurance Building right on Seven, right at the Capitol. Okay. That's where it was. He said, you get your room there and call me up, and I'll come into town. Because he lived out in Goodlesville, which is, it was about a 20-minute drive, you know. So I got there, and uh, next morning I got a room, and, and uh, he told me, he said, now, I'll be in, I'll be in town a certain, certain time, and you meet me down in the lobby. Well, I got up and got ready, you know, and I, Took my banjo and walked down into the lobby. And when I walked in the lobby, there was another guy walked in the lobby with a banjo. And I thought, I'd like to talk to that guy. Not knowing, you know. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> So he about that time this guy walks in and before me and him could even introduce ourselves to each other, Bill Monroe walked in. And he went like this, Come on boys, follow me. <laughs> He's a man of few words. <laughs> so we followed him, and we walked out of the lobby and right next door to the restaurant. There was a restaurant there. I didn't even know it. But we walked in that restaurant, and he said, now, boys, go ahead and eat breakfast. So we all sat at one table. And, and you know, it was pretty quiet because he, he didn't talk much. And, and, of course, we were pretty young. We were pretty bashful, you know. and And, and you already saw that he had a banjo so you guys are probably sizing each other up right yeah yeah. and we both had our banjos with us we took it right in the restaurant and so we so he said after we ate he paid for our breakfast he said now come on and he he said follow me and so we followed him and he walked out there and you just go out that door and right into the National Life and Accident Building and we went on an elevator up to some room up there I don't know what floor it was and those are the folks that owned the Opry right they owned WSM that's right they did and so and that I didn't know I'm learning all this stuff right then you know so uh when we walked in this room though I saw a, a Brown Gibson guitar case over there in the corner and I didn't think nothing about it and so if I remember right he told me he said Dale uh get that guitar there and it was his guitar he just leaves left it there all the time you know and so i got that thing out and i thought well, what kind of deal is this <laughs> 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 and he said uh and, and he told this other guy he said get your get your banjo out and so got out and we played something or sung something i don't know what we've done i don't have no idea uh and then and then he said uh now uh, uh They'll give, give that guitar to that boy there. So, <laughs> and you get your banjo out. Well, we tried that way too. He's trying us both ways, you know. And so he decided then that he's going to try me on guitar and that boy on the banjo. So he told me, he said, now I'll tell you what, you'll like this better. Uh, maybe not right now but you'll you'll thank me for this in years to come yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and found out who it was it was bill keith yeah that's who it was the other boy and me and him were the same age he was only a month apart wow i was born in february and he's born march in 39 <laughs> and we we become great friends and when i heard him play i didn't get to hear him play all that much then but i did later and i thought it, in my mind, I said, he did. He made the right choice because that boy, he had some new stuff. You yeah. Know? And had, Bill, particularly at that time, Bill
0: was always looking to sound different. Yeah. Especially from Lester and Earl, you know.
2: That's right. Yeah. And, and he could see that right away. See, the things I was playing, I learned from Earl Scruggs' records. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, that boy did, too. He knew that stuff. Oh, yeah. But he... Uh, and I tell you he's influenced by Don Stover too, because he was from up in there where Don was working all the time in New England, but at the same time he he could play uh he could play those instrumentals that Bill played yeah. note for note you know and 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 uh but at the same time he could play uh standard banjo breaks, you know he could do that, but he put a little flavor in there and I tell you he'd play rawhide and I never heard nobody play rawhide like that boy did. <laughs> 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 <And> he, would <coughs> he would play that on the Opry, and he'd, they would scream, you know. He he had this course, you know, where it went from C, it went right into E, then it went to A, and then it went to D, and then back to C, you know. And he had this break uh, for that course that was really something just as clear as a bell, you know. And... Uh, I seen then that 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 was that was a good thing for Bill and I thought well now I'm going to work at my on my end of it too you know I knew I could play with Bill but I didn't know about the singing I I knew I could sing with him too, but what I worried about was learning the word style. See, I was the lead singer now, and I had to learn all them songs. And you had probably sang more harmony before, right? That's mainly all I done. You know, yeah. I just sung harmony with everybody in in all the bands. I'd, and sung every part there was. You know, <laughs> so. But, but I. You I, said I, that uh, that Bill told you when he wanted you to flip to guitar, that you'll like this
0: better and you'll thank me. Yeah. What particularly did he see in you that made him think, was it because so you could sing more? Is that why he wanted you to play guitar? Is that why he was so confident that you could pick up the guitar and thought that you would like it more or or what? Well,
2: you know what? I don't know. I don't know what he saw. I, I, I know I'd sung a lot. Now, I don't think Keith had sung all that much in the bands he'd been in. But I'd sung and sung and sung with everybody. And the first thing i had done was the church, though, you know. Yeah. Me and my brother, we were raised missionary Baptists. And me and my brother, GC, and a cousin of mine, Melvin Cook, We, he played a mandolin, and I played the banjo, and GC played the guitar. And our preacher was a uh, – he, he, he had been on the Grand Ole Opry. Really? He'd been on the Grand Ole Opry. But when he got to preaching, his voice, you know, his range dropped. He, he was one of them fiery preachers, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he could sing bass yet. So he was our bass singer. He, and we'd sing all them old uh, hymns out of the Baptist hymn book, you know. And, and, and he knew him Well, we all knew them all. And, and that, that's where I sung first, and I was a tenor singer in that band. And then then I'd be a lead singer in another band, a baritone singer in another band, whatever. (laughs) But I'd sung a lot, and maybe Bill might have picked up on that. And I knew I could play rhythm with him. I knew that. Uh, He'd test you, though. He'd he'd take that mandolin, and he'd play them off lick things, like uh, his rhythms. He'd change his rhythms in that playing, you know. And... uh, it, and I'd watch that left heel though he'd pat his left heel <laughs> and I'd say right in town with that left heel and I knew I couldn't go wrong yeah so you you <laughs> yeah. had the
0: secret right <laughs> you, you, <laughs> Yeah, you figured it out <laughs> yeah
2: I thought oh he's trying to throw me or somebody yeah. you know <laughs> I never heard a mandolin player play like that I guess I hadn't, just hadn't paid that much attention to his mandolin playing you know but he had a he had a different style of playing right from the start it seemed like you know and and he'd play these these r- rhythms he really worked with rhythms you know and and doing all these different rhythm things i i can't explain what they are but uh but it, it could throw a guitar player. it could throw a guy that's trying to play rhythm with him and uh but <laughs> I'd hang right in there with him. <laughs> he'd tell me, would say, now, uh, well, at first, when I went first, I, I kept, you know, I, I stayed back from him because, you know, I didn't want to outshine him or, or get. And, and he'd tell me, say, now, now, Dale, you get in there and crowd me. You, you got to get in there and crowd me. <laughs> he wants you right in there, you yeah. know, with that guitar. <laughs> 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 and singing, I tell you, I learned to. Uh, uh, how to I think I learned a lot about singing about how to project your voice cuz he he was really good at that. He really was. You know, I remember all it's funny I remember all the things from then and and stuff that happened yesterday I can't tell you what happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you when you're young, you, you know, you soak it all in. Yeah. You do. What what were some of the the biggest lessons you
0: learned from your time with Mr. Monroe?
2: You know, I think what it was is just his example. You know the way he he had a he had a tough work ethic. He would, uh, I mean, he told me he said, "You know what I uh, what I like to do? I like to do a show and get in <laughs> and get in the car." And he had a in, in that car now. Before we got a bus, we did get a bus. He wanted me to go with him and get a bus, but uh, before we. When he still had that car, his place was right here in the back, uh, and he'd ha- he had a cushion, a pillow, and he'd lay that pillow against that window and lay a head right over there, and that's how he'd sleep. Now, he'd done that for years before I ever got there. Kept his manlin' right behind him. You know how a station wagon was? You could reach back by- over the seat and get things. Yeah. And uh, if, it was, if it was raining, the bass would be back there, too, in all her suitcases. If it was not raining, the bass would be on the top, tied down. And uh, he'd reach back there, you know, and open that case up, bring that mandolin up here in the daytime, traveling down the road. And he'd play a little something, you know. And one day, he, he played this thing on his mandolin, and I'm sitting right here. I wasn't driving then. We'd have to, the driver would either be in the driver's seat or in the middle back yeah. here. <laughs> they had it tough. <laughs> and and he's playing this little thing, this little riff, you know. And I'm I'm sitting there beside him listening, you know. And he said, "Dale, do you know what that is?" And I said, "Oh, no, I don't think so," you know. And he'd play that little run, you know. It, it was about this is about fifteen seconds long, you know. And uh played again and I I thought to myself, It sounds like Woody Woodpecker. But I thought he wouldn't be playing that. <laughs> you know better. <laughs> so I, I'd have to say, Bill, no, you know I don't know what that is <laughs> After a while he played it again. He said, Dale, don't you know that's a Woody Woodpecker <laughs>
3: he'd
2: go you know <laughs> he had a sense of humor yeah but you hardly ever saw it yeah. <laughs> uh, he was sure a different different dude he he was is he the type of guy that when he told you something you don't know if he's serious or if he's kidding oh that, i mean i never that could get you into trouble oh then, man yeah. i'm telling you just that way you know he, and I think he liked <laughs> he. He was used to having a lot of young musicians, and and I guess he liked putting them on. You know, he did. He. <laughs> but now he was a tough. He was a tough guy. He never said that. The thing about it was, if you worked hard with him, you know, and you got out on that stage, and he seen you was working, you know, with him good. Uh, he wouldn't say nothing to you but if he saw that you were lazy and you know a lot of musicians are lazy yeah he'd ride them till they left he didn't have to farm they'd leave yeah and say, i'm getting out of here <laughs> <laughs> but that's just the way he was you know that's just the way was. and he had so many musicians in his lifetime you know i i'd never be able to count them and i don't i know he wouldn't either <laughs> <laughs>
3: Do you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track? Have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day, but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing? Help focus on your goals and stay on track with the Self Journal from Best Self Co. Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day life, the Self-Journal is packed with tools to help you get more done. With features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code BLUEGRASS, to save 15% off your first purchase.
0: Now, it wasn't too much longer after you left Bill Monroe that you were telling me the other day that you got to work for Don Reno, which a lot of folks aren't familiar with that.
2: Well, I tell you what, I could have worked for Red Smiley first (laughs) because I got to know those guys through Bill, you know. He, if he was coming up 81 from Nashville if he's going north and he's going up 81 he'd stop Baron roanoke and do their their TV show you know for him and so I got to know those guys and and when i quit uh red smiley called me up one day and he said uh, and I'd already got a job i think in the woods and all like that and, and and he said he he found out that I was a banjo player too and he wondered if I'd want a job because he had broke up with don you know don and him broke up and uh i just didn't take him up on it you know i i well i just i just wasn't that interested at the time i would have if it had been a different uh part time i might have took him up on it but but i just didn't take him up on it and then years later after that uh My brother Jerry was playing bass with Don and Bill Harrell, Don Reno and Bill Harrell. And so uh, Jerry told me, he said, You know, Don wants you to come and play guitar with us for a while, because Bill Harrell uh, had to go in the hospital. He's going to get an operation, and he didn't know how long he's going to be off. And it was, they had all these dates booked, you know, and so i said yeah i'll do that you know so i went and i played with him about six months i played uh guitar and sang with don uh until july the fourth weekend what happened uh bill came back a little before that and uh so then i told don i said well now you know I'll, i probably won't play anymore with you and he said no i want you to stay and, and you can play guitar, just do like you always did, and you and your brother can do duets. Yeah. And he'd sing, he'd sing our, make it a trio, Don would. Yeah. Me and Brother Jerry and Don, you know. <laughs> or we'd sing duets sometimes. It's part of the show, you know. We'd do a duet. And I'd also play twin with him. He had a gold-plated banjo of some sort, and, and he took it with him all the time. And, and so me and him would do a uh, twin banjo tune or two on the show, too, you know. And then I got... I got to work with Red Smiley after that because he came back in the band. He came back yeah. by himself. in Him and Don Reno and Bill Harrell were all three partners then, you know. And, but it wasn't too long after that I quit because we played Berryville. I don't know what year that would have been. But we played Berryville, and I told Don, I said, You know, I'm booked there too. And uh, I said, I'll play with you. And and I'll play with my own band there too. But I said I've got all these other dates come in for the summer, and I'll have to quit then, you know. But I really enjoyed playing with that guy. He was he, he was a good guy, and a lot of talent, man. You were you were telling me that because you played
0: banjo, you you tell me about how you guys would go about doing a twin banjo tune.
2: Okay, well I tell you, Don would say now now just play whatever you want to, and I'll 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 play some harmony with you. And he could play it all the way, right to the dead end, you know. <laughs> and he said, "Now, whatever tune you you choose to do, just go ahead and play it, and I'll watch you." And he he'd watch what I how I played that tune, maybe twice through, something like that. And then he he'd say, "Now look, the next time you play it, don't change any of them notes, and I'll play it with you." And he he would uh, play harmony with every note that I had just played. Wow! Just he had it in his head. When he watched me play that or listen, he could play the harmony with it, and we just walk out up on stage and do it, <laughs> just like nothing. <laughs> Tell
0: me about the your decision to start your own band and uh, what was that like in the early days of Del McCurry and the Dixie Pals?
2: It was, yeah, it was the well, you know, I quit Bill Monroe, went to California first, and then uh, me and Billy Baker, we teamed up, you know, together. Mm-hmm. He's a fiddle player, and we were good friends, you know, and. And and we played a lot of dates together out there in California and then back in Baltimore but uh eventually we we kinda of broke off between us. We never we never had no words or anything like that, but uh I got my own band and I thought, Well, if I'm gonna I was playing banjo with that band in California, went back to that and then Billy said, Look, I know a guy here who plays a banjo He said, Won't you go back playing guitar and we'll Get him, so we did and got the t v show that we were on with the other band, Golden State Boys we got on that t v show and then uh we moved back to uh, I moved back to p a and he moved back to Baltimore that's where he lived and uh and we still played together, but then uh and then so I had to you know I had to get the other musicians Billy was playing, and usually I'd have to get a banjo player and a mandolin player or whatever bass player and and uh that's kinda how my band started was through Billy with Billy and then he, he kind of broke off and I don't know what I think he moved. I think he moved to southwest Virginia. Moved back down to where uh Pound, that's where they were from down in there. And and so then I, I kept going with my own band, but I mainly played dates in Baltimore, you know, until uh until uh I played for Carlton Haney at Fen Castle. The second year, he he ran in '65, and I didn't even know about it. I I had just come back from California. I think didn't even know that didn't had hadn't got the news. But then then I knew after it was over, and I, and uh, that they were going to have it again in '66. So I went down there, me and Billy. We went down there, and we got. Uh, after we got there, uh, Chris Warner was there guy had played with us, but we didn't know he's going. And he was there, banjo player. And David Grisman was, was a mandolin player. And, and we all was just uh, playing music there in the parking lot. You know, we, weren't, we didn't go there to play on stage. <laughs> and and, and <clears throat> so we were playing, and Billy said, Now you go talk to Ralph Rensler. Ralph Rensler was the manager of Bill Monroe when I was there. And he had quit before I did. I think he went back north because he got a job with the f- folk life. and uh, but he was helping Carlton. That's with with, with with the Smithsonian, right? That's and right. The folkways and all that stuff. That's yeah. right. He he was, but he went down there and was helping Carlton MC and kind of arrange the bands to wh- who goes on, who comes off. And Billy said, "Now you call you talk to Ralph and see if you can't get us on stage." And I said, "No, I don't do that, you know." <laughs> I was pretty bashful then, anyway. And he, Billy finally talked me into He said, now you know him better than I do. Talk to him. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> so I went and talked to Ralph. I said, Ralph, there is there any chance you can get us on uh, to do a show? Yeah, tonight. After the, after the last band, you can go up there and do all you want. <laughs> <laughs> Still people are, <there>, you know. <laughs> and so we did. We went up there. It was me and Billy. Baker and uh, Chris Warner and David Grisman and I can Clifford Bear. I just now, remembered the bass player's name, Clifford Bear. And uh, so we did that show, and uh, you know, J.D. crow heard it because he's working at the Holiday Inn at the time. And he was—I uh, don't know what he was doing there—but he said he called me up. He said, "You know, somebody brought me a tape of that show you did down there at Fincastle," and he said they're going to give me a job playing music here. And he said, would would you come out and play? I said, I've got a mandolin player. It was Doyle, And he said, I, I wonder if you come play guitar with us and sing. And uh, I said, I'll tell you what, I'll think about it, you know. And as, as it uh, had the worst luck in the world, I, I was really thinking about going out there because it was going to be a steady job oh yeah I mean that Clean, was a you know? nice place too
0: it's it steady was. real steady work you know that yeah. would have been great
2: I sure was thinking hard about it and I had I think I had my wife talked into it <laughs> I think I did <laughs> <laughs> and anyway uh my my dad had a massive heart attack oh and uh the next day and I called uh JD and I told him I said you know I can't come now and I knew he needed somebody then. He needed somebody that weekend or something when they were starting. And I said go ahead and see if you can get somebody in uh, until you know till I see how my dad's going to be and it was it was bad and was touch and go for quite a while, you know. And then I called him up eventually and uh he said, "Well, you know Red Allen come to work with us." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, and I said, well, you know what? Now, that's good because Red had been up there in my part of the country, yeah. and and I knew that he went back because Brother Jerry was playing uh, bass with Red, and they came by my house, and uh, Red said, well, I'm, I'm leaving D.C. He was living in D.C. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving there. He said, uh, my boy's out there in Dayton. They're trying to play music, and... And I gotta go out there and straighten him out. <laughs> you know, Red. Yeah. <laughs> and and so I knew that Red had come back to this part of the country, and uh, I guess he was probably here in Cincinnati. And then JD got him to come down there in Washington. Yeah. You know. Yeah, because that's not too far of a yeah, shot. Pretty, yeah. pretty close. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> You've uh, had your own band, you know, what, for 50-plus years in the music business? I guess so, something yeah. Something like that. <laughs> you've, you've been at this a long time and are one of the most successful bluegrass bands in the history of this genre. What's some of the biggest lessons about the music and the business that you've learned in all these decades of now yeah. the Del
2: McCurry band? Gosh, you know... I tried to do it all myself at one time, you know, do, do all my booking and and uh, uh, type out contracts and 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 maybe at the same time maybe work a day job and all like that. And you know, uh, when when I decided when I quit working a day job and I decided and eventually then it a few few years later i decided to move down to tennessee uh ricky skaggs encouraged me to do that to to move down there you know and and i moved i I think with every band it's a different thing you know it's just things happen with me and the ibma started in middle 80s and and i was doing pretty good there you know uh with awards and stuff and then i moved down to tennessee and and they had TV then, you know. They had quite a bit of TV there then. And uh, my my booking agent was already there, and uh, it seemed like that. You know, a lot of times bands will will uh, it's like they just went against a wall and they can't progress. Yeah. And I think a lot of my I I think I had a lot of breaks, just. Uh, without me knowing it you know at the the time and it's it's kind of hard to uh, to give a band advice you know but i one thing that i can tell them is to be their self you know just to be themselves whatever it is they do and whatever it is they like to do uh you can you can take advice from other people but like when you go into record a record you know do that record like you want to do it you know and 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 if producers have songs for you, that's fine. You know, you can do them. I know I have uh, did records where the producer would bring me a song, and, and, and I wouldn't like to do it. I mean, I, d- I didn't like the song all that much, but I needed it yeah. for the record. And, uh, and, and, and eventually, eventually, when the record come out and I play a show, somebody would say, you know, I bought this album for that song. That you don't like. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I didn't tell them that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: But it, it's a funniest thing. I I always thought variety in a record is what I liked, you know, because I've been places where I'd hear a band and they were, uh, I'd hear like fifteen minutes and then twenty and then thirty and it's and I think there's something about this band that sounds the same all the time. It ain't nothing different, you know. Yeah. And what it was, they were staying in the same key and playing the same speed, and I thought, you know, if I do a record. I'd like to have variety of sounds and yeah. and tempos and moods, you know, yeah. in that record. Uh, a lot of people will ask, you know, now what what did you have in mind for this record? And I'll say, when I went in there, I really didn't know. I just know I wanted to have variety in the record, you know. And uh, but it's it's really hard to. Give advice or advice to other bands, you know.
0: You were saying the other day that you always like trying new things. Why yeah. do you think that's important for a musician or for a band to try new things?
2: Well, that is—that's one thing I that I have you, always liked to do. That you know, uh, but I think I think the first time I did that, really, the first time might have been. I can't remember now <laughs> but my manager uh well i was fortunate too to get a manager you know because they can help you with so many things uh like ideas and and uh i don't know there's so many things that you won't realize that a manager can do for you they can work between you and your agent you know and make sure that if that agent comes with a date your manager might tell him, I know mine has told me this, he said, now, your your agent come up with this data, it pays a lot of money, but I don't want you playing there now. Uh, I don't think it's good for you to go there now. And he said, now, I, I almost could leave it up to you, but my advice is not to do that. And so, in the beginning, when I, 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 I said, look, I'm going to listen to everything you say as far as that business part goes, because... Yeah. A lot of the business that I had handled before that wasn't successful, <laughs> you know? And, and a lot of times musicians, you know, they, they need somebody to help them uh, do things that they should be doing, you know? Uh, and I forgot, I might have got off the subject. Uh, about
0: uh, trying new
2: things. Oh, yeah. Oh, so I remember uh, probably the the uh, most outrageous thing i ever tried was my manager called me one day and he said look uh the preservation hall jazz band are doing a record (laughs) and they uh the uh, distribution company in new york wondered if i would go down there and do some songs with them you know And, and i didn't know these guys or anything and and i said you know i i would like to try that i mean i I like to try different things, you know. <laughs> so went down there, and uh, and uh, I think I recorded three songs with them, and they put two on the record. It was it was to benefit young musicians yeah. that were trying to get started, you know, and try to learn to play. And so I went down there and did that, and then they said, why don't we get our two bands together, you know? And I said, well, look, I'll talk to them see what they want to do. Oh, there's was all up for it, you know. <laughs> well, we went down. Oh, I know. We played the uh, the big uh, festival in New Orleans. The uh, Jazz Festival. The jazz Festival. Yeah, yeah, they had us booked on that several times. And so they said, "Now look, when you play the festival, bring the band over here to our place, which is the Preservation Hall. Is what it's called, and that's that's their kind of like Grand Ole Opry, you know." And so we went over there, and, and Ronnie. In the meantime, he he's good about coming up with ideas too, you know. And he said, you know that that song Bill Monroe recorded, that uh, Muhlenberg Joy. That was a it was an old uh, Dixieland number, jazz number. And so Ron said to him, he said, first thing I think, he said, now do you guys know Muhlenberg Joy? Oh, you mean Muhlenberg Joy? They call it something different, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, they said, oh. Uh, That big jazz guy, he claims he wrote that, but he didn't. (laughs) (laughs) I forget the big jazz guy's name now, but they said, uh, he said he wrote that, but he didn't. (laughs) Anyway, and when when Ronnie played it, they both played it in the same key. It was in the same key that we found out. And uh, they just had one chord that was different in the way they did it. And so it was easy for us to do. Well, later then, uh, we did a few things there and it, and it worked good. Uh, but then we went, and we, our booking agent booked us at a, a state fair, I think it was, in just north of San Francisco out there. And they were playing it too. And they said, you know, we've got a place down in, in, um, in the Mission District and, and where we could record. Why don't we go down and record a record while we're all together here? so well they figured it out before we were played i think but we went down there and spent about two or three days and did a whole record somebody would say how about this song okay let's do that and, you know <laughs> yeah. nobody had a plan <laughs> but we did that and we toured with that record then yeah. we toured all over the country man up in new england and california and everywhere you know
0: i saw you guys do that show here in dayton Didn't uh it? at the big yeah. performing arts center or something downtown it was
2: It was awesome oh really yeah yeah yeah. i i guess we did we was all over the place and and uh, we we had to have our sound man though because you know horns are loud oh yeah they really put out and so we had to have our sound man to uh to bring the the sound up to the volume of the horns, you know and stuff but it was so much fun it really was
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for the time today, Mr. McCurry. It's been a a blast sitting and talking with you, and thank you so much. I appreciate it. Glad, Daniel. Glad to do it. Hi, guys. Adam from Sampson's Hair Care here. I wanted to let you know about a new product we've released called Texture Powder. You just sprinkle it in, work it into your roots, and it provides you with volume, and hold, and texture, while leaving your hair looking natural. Give it a shot. Use the code BLUEGRASS on our website to save 10% off your total. The Season 2 finale of the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast, we went out with a bang with a sit-down interview backstage at the Dayton Art Institute with the Grammy Award-winning Grand Ole Opry star and... Bluegrass Hall of Famer, Del McCurry.
4: Am I the only one that wished that interview went on for another an hour, at least? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I really loved it, man. Uh, great finale for uh, season two, with the legendary Del McCurry. The Del uh, McCurry uh, band was, has probably been one of my uh, biggest uh, musical influences uh, outside of uh, the founders of Bluegrass Music. I discovered uh, Del back in uh, high school and college, and uh, it sort of helped shape um, what I like so much about Bluegrass because he's always been traditional, yet he's been innovative, always been authentic, always been himself, um, and just been a great ambassador for this music to so many uh, so many larger audiences uh, bringing in all kinds of age groups, uh, all kinds of styles and uh, backgrounds of people that have been brought into the music from Dell. So yeah, it was so great, man. Great to hear. We' learned a lot about uh, farming and uh, timber uh, sawmilling. As much as we did about Bluegrass, uh, some great uh, early stories about it, how he got started. And uh, and like I say, I think I could have listened to uh, the interview for about another hour. You know, some of the stories that uh, about the Dell McCurry band, if you go back and listen to the Mike Bubb interview in season one, you can hear even more about uh, some of the things that Ben band uh, did uh, in the years uh, since uh, Dell kicked off uh, into his own uh Band. and that's another great interview one of my favorites from season one so yeah just uh, so thankful uh for this interview thank you for getting with him uh daniel thank you for getting with all these artists you've done such a great job all through this year i'm glad you were able to connect with so many of our uh, favorite um, artists and musicians prior to the uh, pandemic issues and shutdown where we've uh, had to sacrifice so much uh, live music over the past uh, season here but uh, glad and hopefully uh the Waltz time podcast has scratched a little bit of that itch for listeners who were uh, missing some live music it's a way for fans to connect with some of these uh, great artists so uh, if you haven't listened to all these episodes if you're just tuning in to dale we've got two seasons for everybody to go back and binge on all they want some of the best names and greatest names in bluegrass music There's so
0: many lessons from the Del McCurry band that we can apply to bluegrass music as a genre. One of the most important is Del's always been authentic. He's always himself, whether he's on stage or off stage. His music is always authentically Del McCurry as well. However, he shows that you can reach new audiences without changing your music or changing what you love, but just by simply changing your perspective. Dell's music, you know, while he may do some songs that he might not have been aware of uh, back in the you know 70s or 80s, uh, by the time they started really hitting their stride in the 1990s and 2000s, he did change his perspective and took the same music he was making, his same authenticity, same passion, same drive, and just put it in front of new people and really proved that if you kind of put it in a different package than maybe what they're expecting. They're going to love what you do. The way that he worked uh, college bars or brought bluegrass to rock or folk crowds. They're going to fall in love uh, with uh, bluegrass for the same reasons that we love bluegrass, but uh, maybe they just don't know it yet. Uh, you can reach new fans and new audiences by still playing music that is true to yourself, and there's no greater example of that than Del McCurry. It was really special for me to get to sit down and visit with Del. He's been one of my favorite artists uh, for a long, long time, and uh, I still, still means the world to me when I was about, I don't know, eight, nine, ten years old, the Dell and the Boys album was all I could listen to, you know, every time I had to do my math homework, my addition and subtraction, and my multiplication tables, my book reports, I always had Dell and the Boys cranked wide open, and we took a family trip to Nashville, and I don't know if I told this story last season after we chatted with Mike Bubb, but we took a family trip to Nashville and we went to see the Opry at the Ryman because it was in the winter and uh, Del McCurry Band was playing. I was so excited and dad got to got a chance to visit with Ronnie and Rob uh, before the show started and uh, he came back and sat down with us and uh, Del McCurry Band came out and they did a song and then... He uh, looked right at the pew where I was sitting about uh, about a I don't know dozen rows back and he said I'm gonna play this one for my friend Daniel Mullins because this one's his favorite and they kicked off into the 1952 Vincent Black Lightning and I just thought I was the coolest kid in the entire world. <laughs>
4: At that moment, you were the
0: coolest, I'll tell (laughs) you. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, it doesn't get any better than this. And it still doesn't. Del McCurry Band is one of those premier bands in bluegrass. And uh, to me, and I think you'll agree, Ty, they're one of those bands that you really need to take advantage of being able to see now because it's one of those bands that I'll be able to tell my grandkids I saw the Del McCurry Band Just like, you know, people of uh, the first generation of bluegrass can tell their grandkids, I got to see Lester and Earl and Paul Warren and Jake Tulloch and Curly Seckler. Or uh, just like uh, I've heard Bobby Osborne talk about, he got to hear and see the original bluegrass boys uh, when they came to Memorial Hall in Dayton when he was a boy. i will get to tell my grandkids that uh, I saw the Del McCurry Band. You need to, if you're listening and you've never taken advantage, you're blessed to live in a time where Del McCurry is making music. Be sure to take advantage of it because it's not something that's going to last for forever.
4: I couldn't agree more. And thanks for uh, getting this interview with him to cap off the season. And uh, thanks for still being the coolest kid, Daniel, because you brought us two seasons of this fantastic uh, interviews with these folks. And uh, as producer and a Bluegrass fan, I just want to thank you personally uh, for allowing me to be a part of this, Uh, hearing all these interviews, going through them with you, uh, making notes, uh, making commentary on them. It's really been an honor. It's been an honor to, uh, uh, you know, just be a small part of the stories of these folks' career as we bring it to hopefully a newer audience, just like Dale McCurry has brought his music to new audiences. And I know you've already got some... uh, Interviews cataloged away to kick off season three, as we uh, start to move and finding a uh, ways to get to artists. Uh, despite uh, there's some more live music coming back now, and so you've already begun the process of uh, launching uh, the series uh, for the next season.
0: Yes, that's right. We're already in the process of working on season three, and folks, I will go ahead and let you know we haven't. We're not going to forget about you, even though the world is upside down. Uh, we do have a surprise bonus episode with the Bluegrass Music Hall of Famer that will be coming out. So, if I were you, and I didn't want to miss it, I'd make sure I hit that subscribe button, whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss our surprise bonus episode that will come out sometime between uh, the end of Season 2 and the beginning of Season 3. It's with the Bluegrass Hall of Famer, and it's going to be It's going to be great. So be sure you don't miss it. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss our bonus episode uh, coming up at a random time. So it'll be a ton of fun. If if you enjoyed season two of the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast, whether with Del McCurry or Doyle Lawson or anybody in between on season two, be sure to share the podcast with a friend. We'd really appreciate it. If you could leave us a rating, or a review of the podcast on whatever platform that you are listening on that would be great as well. That helps more people find out about these great stories from some of the leaders and legends in bluegrass. You can support the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast by getting a Walls of Time shirt as well. Those are for sale for 20 bucks on our Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast website. That's just wallsoftimepodcast.com. Wallsoftimepodcast.com. You can get a shirt and uh, you can shoot us an email on there as well. Uh, to let us know what you think about the podcast. You can also find us on social media as well. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and uh, we would love to connect with you. Thanks so much for listening to Season 2 of The Walls of Time. Until you hear from us again uh, in our surprise bonus episode, thanks for listening.
3: Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is produced by Ty Gilpin and Daniel Mullins, edited by Daniel Mullins, and is a production of Blue Poncho Media. Visit wallsoftimepodcast.com for more information.